Raise your hand if you have uh, used the Be My Eyes app. Be My Eyes app. Well done, Mr. Calvin. Anybody else? Be My Eyes app? This is an amazing app. This is using technology for an incredibly good purpose. And so here's what it is. The Be My Eyes app uh, links sighted people with the blind or the uh, poor vision, people with poor vision. And so imagine that a blind person is trying to decide, can I drink the milk or is, or is this milk spoiled? And, you know, the expiration date's not in Braille, so uh, they can use their smartphone, open up the Be My Eyes app. It will uh, ping somebody who, a sighted person who has said, I'm willing to help out. If you have the time, you click OK. And now, through your phone, you're seeing what uh, the blind person's smartphone is looking at. And so all of a sudden, hey, I'm trying to decide if I can drink the milk. I can't see the expiration date. And uh, so you're looking, hey, tilted down, a little to the left. There it is. You got three more days. You're good. Thanks so much. Click. It's over. Ten common ways people are using the Be My Eyes app. Finding lost or dropped items. Describing pictures, paintings, or other pieces of artwork. Matching or explaining colors. Reading labels on household products. Reading on computer screens if websites are inaccessible or screen readers not available. Shopping in supermarkets. Identifying the expiration date on perishable food packages. Familiarizing uh, themselves with new places. Distinguishing between food items or finding out when public transportation, buses, trains, etc., are departing or arriving. And uh, as of Thursday, 124,478 blind and low vision people are using the app and over 2 million uh, helpful sighted people. And uh, Calvin, I'm assuming that's you. And I heard about this from uh, my sister-in-law, Joy. Uh, so, uh, amazing piece of technology. Now, the, the purpose of the Be My Eyes app is to help uh, blind people navigate their world easier. But it has the additional benefit of hooking up uh, people who are willing to help with people who need help and giving those helpers the helper's high, right? Uh, when, you, when you get to help somebody, that feels great. But we would be wrong to say the purpose of the app is to give helpful people a helper's high. That's just a side benefit. Uh, that's a, a nice additional benefit. It's not the purpose of the app. The purpose of the app, the reason it was created, is to help blind and low vision people navigate their world better. So today we are talking about the cross. And the cross is God's solution to a very particular problem. And the cross has additional benefits. Uh, wonderful byproducts. And sometimes those uh, byproducts, because they're so awesome, sometimes we, can, we make a mistake of elevating them to the primary purpose of the cross. And, but it's not. And, and if we do that, we run the risk of um, failing to understand uh, what the cross is really all about. And so... Uh, I want to start with four additional benefits of the cross that aren't the primary purpose of the cross, that are absolutely worth celebrating, uh, but let's kind of check those off before we get to, so what is 
uh, the primary purpose of the cross. What is the problem to which the cross is the solution? So, first additional benefit of the cross that is not the primary purpose of the cross is this. The cross gives us an example of what it looks like to fully obey God. And the Bible points this out in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. We read, And being found in human form, he, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus' willingness to lay down his life in obedience to the Father's good plan for us uh, shows that Jesus was uh, willing to obey the Father uh, 100% all the way to the point of death. And that's a marvelous example for us. What a, what a challenging example. I want to be the kind of child of God who is also willing to obey the Father 100% of the time, even if he asked me to lay down my life. That's what we aspire to. But that's not, as awesome as that is, that example is not the primary purpose of the cross. Number two, the cross calls us to suffer on behalf of others. Uh, Apostle Peter points this out in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For, this, for to this you have been called. What have we been called to? We've been called to suffer on other people's behalf. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Elsewhere, Jesus told his disciples, if you want to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross and come follow me. Uh, choosing to sacrifice ourselves so that others might benefit is part of the Christian calling. And uh, Jesus, the cross, uh, calls us to it. It sets the example. And that is, that is an amazing benefit of the cross but not the primary purpose of the cross. Number three, the cross shows us how to suffer with patience. In Acts chapter 8, verse 32, we read about Jesus. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Uh, Jesus tells us, no one takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. I could call uh, a legion of angels and they would take me down out of the cross, off the cross, and they would level my enemies. But he chose not to do that. He chose not to retaliate. He chose to endure the injustice. And, and thereby he sets us an amazing example of what it looks like to suffer the injustice in the world uh, in, with patience and in faith and humility. Wonderful benefit of the cross, not the primary purpose of the cross. And finally, and this is a purpose, uh, this is a benefit of the cross that, uh, is, that many people mistake as the primary purpose. In fact, in my reading this week, I encountered uh, a, number of, uh, a number of arguments saying this is the purpose of the cross, and it's not, although it's amazing. The cross shows us how much God loves us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, 
If you ever doubt that God loves you, look to the cross. How much does God love me? This much. Right? You can't look at the cross and not know God loves me. So much that he laid his life down for me. He endured the, the terrible suffering of the cross. Greater love has no man than this. He lays down his life for his friends. And so absolutely, the, gro- the cross puts the love of God for us uh, in technicolor. It's unmistakable. And that is an amazing benefit of the cross, but it is not the primary purpose of the cross according to the Bible. All right, with that by way of introduction, what then is the primary purpose of the cross? Or another way to ask the question, what is the problem to which the cross is the solution? And the Bible says the cross is the solution to our sin problem. The primary purpose of the cross is to cancel out the power, the presence, and the penalty of sin in our lives. The root problem for all of us, our core problem, our greatest problem is sin. Now, you ask your classmate, you ask your neighbor, you ask your friend, your family member, what's your greatest problem? They might not name sin. They'll probably name a derivative, right? Uh, People don't recognize how awesome I am, and thus I am not loved and appreciated or paid nearly enough, right? Or... Or, hey, the greatest problem is the fact that we are not taking care of the environment and there's uh, climate change and, and it's, it is, we've only begun to see the byproduct of all that. Uh, or it's economic injustice. People aren't connected enough. They don't care. These are, these are problems, but they are uh, derivatives. The core problem, what's at the root is sin. Not just societal sin, but sin in your life and sin in my life. Our problem, collectively and individually, our core problem, our greatest problem, is sin. And it is, that is the problem the cross addresses. And so the Bible in uh, Genesis chapter 3 describes the very first sin. And its effects. And so, God told Adam and Eve, you may eat from the fruit of every tree in the garden except one. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did they do? We all know. They disobeyed God. And they reached out and they took. uh, Deceived by the evil one who said, you're going to be better off doing it your own way. Don't trust God. Um, But when they did that, they unleashed sin into the world and its devastating effects. And four effects of sin that we we read about are, number one, uh, people became separated from God. Adam and Eve used to walk in fellowship with God in the garden. And they, but after sinning, they were kicked out of the garden and an angel with a flaming sword was put at the garden's entrance and the fellowship between humans and God was broken. God is holy, and all of a sudden, because of our sin, humans were unholy, and there can't be fellowship. Uh, Secondly, uh, sin 
caused Adam and Eve to be at odds with each other. Prior to sin, they got along marvelously. They celebrated each other and their differences. They perfectly complemented each other. There was no relational tension. But now as a result of sin, there is conflict and, of course, conflict between people from that point on. Third effect of sin is that it put us at odds with nature. Before there was sin, Adam and Eve had the green thumbs. And uh, the, the world just seemed to effortlessly respond to their cultivation and it produced uh, an abundant harvest for them. But after sin, the, the earth uh, fought, fights people. It's by the sweat of your brow that you're going to survive. And we, were intend- we, were, we are called to steward the earth, but in sense, since then we have been uh, harming the earth for the most part and not been good stewards of nature. And the final effect of sin is that it unleashed the principle of death within us. And so we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that was Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so, uh, although in the 21st century we are very technologically advanced, it cannot be say that we said that we are morally advanced, uh, because you and I and everyone on planet Earth has this principle of sin and death at work within them, corrupting us personally and corrupting all all of our society. We are incapable of dealing with our sin problem on our own. All of our own efforts to uh, lift ourselves up by our bootstraps or to uh, become a nobler, more civilized people, uh, it has never worked. It's never worked because sin is like a cancer to which we have no tools to adequately fight. And so, uh, unless you become a follower of Christ and are dwelt with His Spirit and now have the power of God within you to uh, combat sin, sin will just proliferate in your own life and in your family and in your society around you. And so, uh, left to ourselves, uh, we would not be able to deal with our sin problem. But thankfully, God does not leave us to ourselves Uh, He has sent His Son, Jesus, to go to the cross to deal with our sin problem. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. Today we're looking at verses 21 to 26, and we're going to... This text unpacks why it is that the cross is God's solution to our sin problem. So it's not a very long text, but it is one of the most theologically dense texts in Scripture. And so I'm going to read verses 21 through 26, then we're going to go back and, and uh, unpack each verse. And then uh, by the end, we will have seen why it is that the cross is the solution to our sin problem. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, back to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, we've entered a new age. In the past, God related to people through the Mosaic law with its sacrificial system, with its legal code. And so if you wanted to have fellowship with God, if you wanted to um, be in a relationship with God, you had to come to Him through uh, His people, the Jews, and through the Mosaic law, or otherwise known as the Old Covenant. But things have changed. God is now relating to people through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if they want to have a relationship with God, they need to have faith in Jesus but this would not have surprised the prophets because if you read the prophets, they talk about a new covenant that's coming. And so the prophets understood that the Mosaic law was a temporary administration of uh, God's relationship with people. But they, had, they foretold something better was going to come. And that better thing has come, and it is Jesus. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. The righteousness of God has to do with the justifying act uh, of activity of God. Upon what basis does God declare people righteous and uh, good, felt, uh, relationally good with Him? And it's, we, that is now through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there is no distinction. So here's Paul saying, <clears throat> Christianity is, is not just the way to God for Christians, but the Jews can continue to come to God through the Mosaic Law, or a Buddhist through the Eightfold Noble Path, or a Muslim through the Five Pillars of Islam, or a Hindu through the worship of their 350 million gods. Uh-uh. He is saying there is only one way to relate to God, and that is through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And this applies to all people on the planet of all colors and all cultures and all ages. Why? Why is it necessary for all? And that's what verse 30, 23 says. For, here's why there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because Jesus is the only solution to the sin problem, and all people on the planet are sinners with a sin problem. And apart from Jesus, you can't have your sin problem dealt with. That's why, that's why all people on the planet must be reconciled to God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. 
because it's Christ's sacrificial death on the cross and only that which adequately deals or deals at all with our sin problem. Verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So to be justified is to be declared righteous by God. God, the great judge of all the world, the gavel comes down. And prior to you, prior to us repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Jesus Christ, the gavel has already come down and declared us sinners guilty of death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The just punishment for your sin and my sin is death. So the gavel has already come down and declared all of us guilty and deserving of death. But... When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the gavel comes back down and says, I declare you righteous. You are no longer sinful. Uh, There is no longer a barrier between you and me. We're okay. We have fellowship and you will spend eternity with me in heaven. So upon what basis are people justified, declared just as if I'd never sinned. By our good works, right? By going to church a whole lot and tithing tremendously. That is not what it says, does it? They are justified by His grace as a gift. Grace is unmerited favor. A a gift is something you don't earn, it's given to you. So... God does not declare you righteous because you become good enough. Uh, I do more good than I do bad. I'm better than my neighbor. And therefore God will accept me. That is not the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is you will be declared righteous if and only if uh, you receive God's gift of righteousness in His Son, Jesus Christ. Nobody earns salvation. You just can't do it. I can't do it. You can't be good enough. You cannot cancel the power, presence, and penalty of sin in your life. Only Jesus can do that. And so we are justified by His grace as a gift. And the gift comes through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Uh, redemption there is a buyback. You are a slave to sin and death, and Jesus, through his death upon the cross, buys, buys us back so that we, the slave, can be set free. Praise God. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What is a, first off, God put forward. The cross is God's idea. It was not plan B. Have you ever heard that? Plan A was that the Jews would receive Jesus as their Messiah, beat the Romans, but because they failed to receive Christ, he had to go to the cross. It was like, what are we going to do now? Well, quick, let's, let's come up with the cross idea. Plan B. Nope, it was always plan A because apart from the cross, Our sin problem cannot be dealt with. 
So God puts him forward. The cross was God's idea. Propitiation by his blood. What, what is that? Propitiation is a, a very technical term. It's used only twice in the New Testament. And it, it refers to the mercy seat, which is a place on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, it's, it was um, sat in the temple in the Holy of Holies. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments and the uh, rod of Aaron that had uh, performed, got through which God had performed some pretty cool miracles. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant had these cool uh, carved golden cherubim. And between the cherubim, uh, that's called the mercy seat. And God's presence would be manifested right there sometimes uh, during the history of Israel. Now, no one was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest and, and then only once a year. And they tied a rope around the, the high priest in case he did something to offend the Lord and was struck dead in the Holy of Holies. Then they could just pull him out uh, and not have to go in and themselves get struck dead. So this is a big deal. And once a year, the Holy of Holies would go into, I'm sorry, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with a, a bowl of blood from an animal sacrifice. And this was always on the Day of Atonement. And uh, the animal whose, whose life had been taken uh, because of the, to, to cover the sins of the people. And it was a recognition that the penalty of sin is death. That's why animals were killed. Uh, and so the high priest would bring the bowl of blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Once a year, and God accepted that blood of the, of the sacrificial animal, not as payment for the sins of the people, because an animal cannot die in place of a human, but he rather accepted it as a sign of the faith of the people, and it allowed him to continue relating to Israel despite their sin. But those sins that God overlooked throughout the many hundreds of years of Israel's history, in order to continue relating to his people, they had never been paid for. So we read this. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. He'd passed over them, but he hadn't dealt with them. He hadn't de demanded uh, payment for those sins. So what did Christ do on the cross? When Christ hung upon the cross, he paid the penalty for all sin. We, what we say is Christ's death is sufficient payment for all the sins of all time, of all people. But only those who repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ benefit from his death upon the cross. And so... Jesus, when he died, the Bible tells us that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the final sacrifice. And Jesus' blood satisfied the wrath of God that rests upon us because of our sin. Jesus' blood uh, paid our sin debt. Which is why when Jesus died, God could now, uh, well, we'll talk about that in a bit, why why his death enabled God to be righteous. Verse 26. 
it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So I have been asked many times, why can't God just forgive sins? I mean, God is love. And he knows that people's sins are sending them to hell. And so if God is love, why doesn't he just say, I love you, I'm, we're just not going to worry about that, I'm just going to forgive you. Right? Can't God do that? Why doesn't he do that? I would think if I were the loving God, that's what I'd do. I'd care more about people than I would about their sin, and I would just say, let's not worry about it. Let's just be friends. Right? The problem with that is God cannot be just and also merciful because sin demands the punishment of death. Miroslav Volf. He is a, a professor at Yale University. In fact, he's the director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale University. And he wrote a book called Free of Charge, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. And here's what he writes. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? In other words... You know, a loving God ought to just forgive sins. God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. Absolutely. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million displaced my villages and cities, my people, shelled day in, day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, 800,000 people hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? Did he dote on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? Did he refuse to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirm the perpetrators' basic goodness? No, wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecent indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I'd have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. In other words, God loves you so much that he will not ignore or, or brush under the rug the evil that has been done to you. He will repay it in full. But here's the dilemma. If God pours out death upon the sinner, if we have to die for our sin, it's game over, right? But God loves us. And the dilemma is, but if he just, if he just says, oh, let's not worry about it, and doesn't punish sin, then he's not being just. So what's the solution to this dilemma? God loves us so much that he, the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish. But all should come to repentance. So, 
What's the solution? The solution is God says, I love people, but I have to be just. I'm going to come down in the person of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to take the punishment for their sins upon myself. By his stripes, we are healed. And so that's what Jesus did. God said, I, and it's the cross that enables God to be both 100% just, to, to repay all sin what it deserves, and be merciful. And that's what, that's what Paul says in this last verse. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, God's righteous because he, ju- because he punishes sin, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the cross enables God to be both 100% just and completely merciful to people. And that is not possible apart from the cross, which is why the cross is God's solution to our sin problem. Now, the postmodern mind rebels against any meta-narrative. The idea that there is kind of one grand story that explains the human condition uh, just does not, to a postmodern mind, does not seem to do justice with human diversity. Uh, and so this idea that the problem of all people is sin and the solution is Christ's death upon the cross and that all people who want to be reconciled to God must come to God through faith in His Son Jesus, that is just very anathema to the, uh, the modern the postmodern mind to the spirit of our age. And so what, what the postmodern mind wants to say is, if that's the way you understand your problem and the world's problem, uh, and it works for you, fine, great. If that, if that helps you navigate your world and makes you feel better, great. But that's not the way I understand the world. But the problem is, if we don't accurately understand the problem, we will apply a false solution. So, you have to, you have to decide, am I going to believe God when He says, the problem of all people is sin. They have rebelled against me. What is sin? John says sin is lawlessness. Sin is acting as if there is no God who has, a, who has revealed a will for my life and I'm going to just act like I'm, I get to decide for myself what I can do and I'm just going to live on my own terms. I'm going to be my, uh, king of my own life. That, the Bible says, is lawlessness. That, the Bible said, is, is sin for which God will hold you accountable. And so uh, we can bury our heads in the sand Right? And say, that's not my problem. But if it is your problem, then apart from the cross, you have no solution to your core problem. And the world has no solution to our core problem. So, uh, you know, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian, the 
the takeaway of the message today is pretty simple, right? <laughs> uh, you've got a problem, and God has provided a solution through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, God says, for all who believe, to them gave he the, the right to become children of God. God offers you a gift. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be declared righteous if you will receive the death of my son, Jesus, as the substitute uh, death for you. Repent and believe is the way the Bible puts, puts it. And so that's available to you, and I certainly would appeal to you on God's behalf. Don't leave today without doing that. But I want to talk to uh, Christians. And uh, we're told in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, uh, speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. It's a principle. Uh, but here's the deal. We, if we, you have to settle in your own mind and heart. Uh, are there multiple ways to be reconciled to God? Is Christianity only one way? And, but if you settle in your mind, as I have, that there is only one way, and it is through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ, then that's the truth. And it's not just true for you, it's true for all people. And I know it goes against uh, the, the spirit of the age. But if you conclude that, well, what, then what do you do? And that's where this verse is so important, speaking the truth in love. We must speak the truth, okay? But we have to speak the truth in love. And what does it mean? Sure, certainly it has to do with our tone, but it really has to do with our uh, purpose, right? We're not, it's not about winning arguments or, or taking scalps right? You're not going to have a higher place in heaven because you won more people to Christ than I did. But your purpose needs to be, you're created in the image of God. God loved you enough to die for you. Uh, you are valuable to God. And I love you enough that I don't want to be separated from you for eternity. And so we speak the truth we speak the truth in love, and that's what we're called to. And the Lord has and will use that gospel proclamation to win people to Christ. Not everybody, uh, but you, if you will do that boldly for a lifetime, uh, you will be used by God to bring people uh, into heaven. <laughs> people, uh, you will be an instrument through which people get saved. And that's awesome, and that's noble. And I can't think of any better thing uh, to do with our lives. And so maybe your action item this week is to go ahead and ask that friend to come to church next week and hear the good news of Easter. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us enough to um, send your son, your only begotten son, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So, Father, we thank you for your uh, love and your sacrificial plan. Jesus, we thank you for um, being obedient to the Father to the point of death. We honor you. Apart from you, we cannot be saved. We love you. Spirit of God. Uh, we thank you for continuing to mediate the presence of Christ, continuing to affirm in us 
that uh, we are children of the Lord, that our sins are forgiven, empowering us to live and animating our lives with that confident hope that we will rise again someday to spend eternity with you. Everything that we have that is good comes from you. We love you. We thank you for your word. It's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.